Good morning. It's Monday, the 30th of October, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's much smogged financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day Israel's ground invasion of Gaza begins. Markets wait to see further cues. Luxury home sales are on the tear once again, double in many cities in the last nine months. Technology and Jandhan accounts mean governments have already figured 7,000 plus ways of targeting voters, both at the central and state levels. In what must be a new record for a bribe, an aviation regulator is accused of taking an aircraft for one. And Mumbai bids a goodbye to its iconic Premier Padmini yellow and black taxi. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Markets wait for Middle East cues. Israel has begun its ground invasion of Gaza, a move that markets were watching and waiting to see in the last week since Israel began amassing troops on the border. So the impact on crude has been somewhat limited so far, holding up around $90.5 a barrel, up from previous days, but not yet as sharply as one would have thought or expected, at least at this point. Bloomberg, meanwhile, reported that Middle Eastern markets had opened on Sunday, showed little signs of panic as trading began a day after Israel began that invasion. Israel's TA35 stock index rose 1.6% as of Sunday afternoon in Tel Aviv, headed for its first gain in three trading days. The index is down nearly 11% since Israel declared war after the Hamas terror attack on October 7th. Investors are now looking for signs that the conflict could expand and the likelihood of other countries, including Iran, getting drawn in, but are at this point convinced or hope that it's unlikely to happen. Back home, last week ended well, though it did not start or run as well. Stocks finally broke a six-day losing streak on Friday as the Sensex closed at about 63,783. That's up 635 points while the Nifty 50 closed at 19,047, that's up 190 points. Earlier in the six days, the benchmark Sensex had crashed 3,280 points and the Nifty 50, 954 points. So foreign portfolio investors have pulled out more than 20,000 crore rupees from Indian equities this month so far, thanks to both the rising yields in the United States treasuries and, of course, tensions in the Middle East, apart from other reasons. Foreign portfolio investors had turned net sellers in September and pulled out about 14,700 crores then. Before the outflow, foreign portfolio investors had bought equities worth 174,000 crore rupees or 174 crore rupees in the six months from March to August 2023. Interestingly, foreign portfolio investors, according to reports, have stepped up in the debt market, investing around 6,080 crores. Now, this is result season, and to some extent, the quality of corporate results from the second quarter will set the tone for the markets to the extent that they can outweigh all the factors we discussed just now. One big one that came out last week was Reliance Industries, which reported a 30% year-on-year rise in consolidated net profit to around 19,000 crore rupees for the September 2023 quarter. Gross revenue for the same quarter rose 1.2% or barely year-on-year to about 255,000 crore rupees. Reuters said Reliance's quarterly profits were weaker than expected as a fall in crude prices hit revenue from fuel sales and hurt its mainstay oil-to-chemicals business. Reliance relies heavily on its oil-to-chemicals business to make money despite its aggressive and visible expansion into retail, telecom and green energy. 
Reliance also saw its refinery margins touch record levels last year as it consumed a lot of cheaper Russian crude and exported refined fuel to Europe. That benefit, according to Reuters, has since waned. Reliance chairman Mukesh Ambani said that weak global demand and supply overhang continue to impact downstream margins. The growth of oil and gas business is particularly noteworthy with production from the KGD6 block ramping up, he said. KG in KGD6, by the way, stands for Krishna Godavari in eastern India. From oil to cars, car maker Maruti reported a strong second quarter on profits of about 3,717 crore above analyst estimates thanks to larger and more expensive vehicles, including the likes of the seven-seater Ertiga, whose volumes have shot up sharply in keeping with the overall consumer demand for SUVs across India. Onions, once again a tariff tool. From oil to cars to onions. Last week, we touched upon how it was the turn of onion prices, once again, you could argue, to shoot up. Well, the government on Saturday imposed a minimum export price of $800 a tonne or 67 rupees a kilogram on onion exports between 29th October and 31st December to obviously prevent onions from being exported or to disincentivize that process. Now, supply has become erratic and thus have prices because of delays in the arrival of Kharif onions, which are now expected to hit the market from Maharashtra, the leading grower, in December. So Kharif means monsoon and autumn being the period when the crops are sown and usually runs between June and October. Onion prices have shot up by more than 50% in the last two weeks to about 80 rupees a kilogram in the retail markets of Delhi. In Maharashtra's Lasal Gaon, India's onion trade hub, prices increased 58% in two weeks to 38 rupees a kilogram on Tuesday, and average prices in key onion growing districts of Maharashtra are in the range of 45 rupees to 48 rupees a kilogram. Additionally, the sowing of Kharif onions in Karnataka and Andhra Pradesh has been low as farmers incurred losses over the last two years, and below normal rainfall in these states has further reduced onion production, according to the Economic Times. Like in most other cases, the government has resorted to either a ceiling or ban on exports of food products. For example, in the case of rice, depending on the type of rice, it's a ban, like in the case of non-basmati rice. And in the case of basmati rice, there's a price floor, which means you cannot export below a certain price that's been set by the government. In the case of wheat too, there are price ceilings and now is the turn of onions. The use of this tool obviously is a relatively easy one compared to everything else and it only hurts largely the exporting community and of course countries who might be importing that particular product. For example, rice whose imports have obviously slowed down into the rest of the world and upset many countries. The option of course is to focus on storage, something that we've not cracked successfully obviously because of lack of sufficient incentives or the clamor for more. I wonder sometimes if we treat, let's say, something like semiconductor manufacture and rightly so as mission critical and important to the government and country and offer 50% government subsidies and even more to private players to set up chip making assemblies, maybe we need to do that or more to set up cold chains so that we don't face these wildly fluctuating prices and all the attendant stress level that brings to policymakers and of course politicians. Luxury Homes on a Tear Luxury homes continue to grow and faster than affordable homes now after the tide turned a few months ago. The last nine months, 
saw a 115% rise in luxury home sales over the previous year, a new report from real estate consulting firm Anarok says. Luxury homes are pegged at costing more than 1.5 crore rupees each and some 84,000 such units were sold in the top seven cities in the January to September period as compared to 39,000 in the same period last year. The share of luxury homes of the total units sold has risen 24% from 14% in the previous year. Some cities have grown much faster than the others. Mumbai, National Capital Region and Hyderabad have topped the list. Hyderabad grew 260%. That's from about 3,700 units to about 13,600 units, a sign of supply as much as demand. None of the top seven cities saw any slowdown in luxury housing sales. Anurag Group Chairman Anuj Puri said that actually they went into overdrive. While strong sales are obviously good for the construction and real estate industry, the rush to buy real estate at this pace deserves closer examination and to what extent it is or if it is being seen as a hedge against inflation or a reflection of more wealth creation. There's of course nothing concerning about all of that, except of course that the level of indebtedness which could be rising and is rising across the economy. India's new 7,000 types of freebies. Election freebies to voters existing and potential is almost as old as election itself. The problem in India has always been a spray and pray approach, which is to offer subsidy and benefits to wide swaths of the populace and then of course win their hearts and their votes. Now that is of course worked, but the efficacy of that has always been questioned, if not doubted. This is changing. Economic journalist and author Shankar Iyer, in a new column in the New Indian Express titled Assembly Polls Reduced to Contest of Cash and Freebies, contrasts the old approach of wooing voters across segments giving way to targeted promises. In this he says, using an interesting example, that the woman voter has emerged as a game changer. States are racing up to up the ante with promises for the affection of woman voters. In Madhya Pradesh, the promise of 1500 rupees to women by the Congress saw the Shivrat Chauhan regime hike cash transfers under the Ladli Bhena scheme from 1000 rupees to 1500 rupees and promised to raise it further to 3,000 rupees per month. In Rajasthan, the Ashok Gailot government has promised an annual allowance of 10,000 rupees to women. In Telangana, K. Chandrasekhar Rao has promised 3,000 rupees a month to women from eligible households. Most amazingly, the expansion of cash transfers is visible in the registration of over 7,000 codes by states and the government on the National Payments Corporation portal. Each code reflects one kind of subsidy or benefit. The lion's share is obviously the states which have more than 6,500 such codes. The challenge of implementing poll promises or where the bill finally lands up is visible on state budgets. Karnataka, for instance, had to set aside 52,000 crore rupees to pay for its guarantees issued before the elections. But the larger question, at least to me at this point, is with sharper targeting and the resultant efficiency in the welfare system, are we reducing spends or using this efficiency to grow even further? So I began by asking Shankar Iyer how the freebie or welfare bill has grown. We can look at it in a couple of different ways. One way would be to look at the number of acronyms and schemes that are listed on the Government of India website. The second one would be to sort of look at the big tech events. So we spend roughly 2 lakh crores on providing food for 800 million people. We spend about 1 lakh crores for rural employment scheme. The budget lists around 50 centrally sponsored schemes, which cost about 5 lakh crores. 
or you could look at the state government websites and you would find again a similar array of lists. So to answer your question, how big is India's welfare bill is something that I've been tracking for probably the last decade and never come even close to an answer. But there are ways to do it, you know, there's a bank documents and other stuff. But the point is that it's expanding. Right. Okay. So I think, and you've given us some numbers to chew on. So the next question then is that, is the efficiency of distribution increasing? And it's very clear now, for example, there are far more targeted schemes and all the tech stack or the India stack infrastructure allows the government, whether it's federal or state, to do far more targeting. So which obviously means even within the welfare universe, there is a lot more efficiency than ever before. How are you seeing it? So welfare in India is pre-Aadhaar and post-Aadhaar. So in the post-Aadhaar era and with the onset of the Aadhaar-enabled payment systems, most payments are now through the Jandan accounts, through the Aadhaar infrastructure. So if you look at the National Payments Corporation of India, which handles all the direct benefit transfers or Bharat DBT, you will see there are over 7,000 codes registered. And... These include, I think, roughly 300 codes are for the central government, which has about 53 departments which make payments through direct benefit transfers. And these include scholarships, pensions, wages. This includes LPG subsidies and other stuff. And there is the assurance of efficiency, but there is also this thing that at the switch of a button, now state governments can sort of transfer money to targeted groups. And so this has sort of led an expansion of the subsidy umbrella or the welfare umbrella. And there is no tracking. Absolutely, nobody really knows which schemes are on or which schemes are off. At least the least the government of India should have the states do is to produce outcome report or at least a spend report every year. Right. So the number itself is quite staggering, Shankar. You said 7,000 codes, which means each code is one type of subsidy or benefit. No. So here's the thing. The codes are for specific communities. The codes are for specific districts. The codes are for specific states. Like for instance, Chhattisgarh had three different cities operationalizing schemes. So we don't know. Yeah, but it's still, a, I mean, obviously, I mean, the majority of this is state level and each state will have so many codes. But the fact that it's got distributed into so many pipes, if that's the right word, in itself is quite interesting, isn't it? Yes. And the capillary routes that have been set up in some senses is very interesting. And the people, folks at NPCI tell me, they register a code, start a scheme and sort of wrap up after six months because either it's worked or not worked or whatever the issue is, or maybe the season has ended for them. So the incentive process in politics is very different from actual necessities on the ground. Right. The sort of million-dollar question now is that with all this efficiency, and you did hint to this effect a little earlier now, but with all this efficiency, are we spending much more because the classic allegation has been that, you know, we obviously lose a lot of money as we distribute it. But clearly now we are not losing as much or much, much less than ever before. So therefore, are we spending less or still spending more? We are far away from Rajiv Gandhi's famous 15 paisa out of every rupee reaches the beneficiary. We are much more efficient because either the money is going to Jandan accounts or it is 
much of it is through the banking system now. There are still pockets where I think wages, for instance, in Narega under cash distribution. But what is the scale of this is an interesting question because what one would assume is that between the government of India and the state governments, they would have one number which would say this is what we spend. That Rosetta Stone is yet to be discovered. So I think we have a rough idea, non-development expenditure according to RBI is 14%, so stuff like that. It would be interesting. But what this tells you also is the stratification in the economy go with. That fact that the world's fifth fastest growing economy has to feed 800 million people free rations, that it has to create jobs for 260 million people under a rural employment scheme, that it has to cover 500 million people under a health insurance program, shows the different levels of deprivation or denial in the system. Right. Uh, Shankar, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Planes as bribes. As the scale and ingenuity in bribes and kickbacks go, this must set a global record of sorts. A director in India's civil aviation regulator, DGCA, or Director General of Civil Aviation, has been accused of using his position to take three aircraft as bribe from flying schools and in turn leasing the planes to different schools on a monthly lease rental of 90 lakh rupees each, a whistleblower letter, details of which were verified by the Economic Times, has said. So let me repeat the relevant point to you. The bribe is an aircraft, not cash, not Bitcoin, not Benami property, gold, diamonds or a fleet of luxury cars, but an aircraft actually make that three whole aircraft. Following a complaint, the official has been transferred from his position and an investigation has been started against him by the vigilance wing of DGCA, says the Economic Times. India's flying schools have seen several accidents in recent years caused apparently or primarily by a lack of maintenance of aircraft or not adhering to DGCA laws. Five aircraft of Redbird Aviation, the largest flight school, have crash-landed in the last six months due to engine failure, says the ET. And investigations have found the planes were not maintained properly and the trainers were not complying with critical safety rules of the DGCA. And it also turns out that the official charged with seeking aircraft as bribes is a trained pilot himself and was the only person who had expertise in training aircraft in the DGCA. Due to this, he's been responsible for regulating flight schools in the last seven years. Taking flight. Speaking of flight and taking flight, roughly 42,000 migrants from India have crossed the southern United States border illegally during the fiscal year starting last October through September, according to data compiled by the United States Customs and Border Protection reports the Wall Street Journal. This is double the number from the same period the prior year when crossings by Indians hit a historic high. An additional 1,600 have crossed the northern border, that's with Canada, illegally, four times the number who crossed in the last three years combined. Since 2007, the total number of illegal border crossings by Indians in a fiscal year has exceeded 5,000 only four times. Indians apparently nearly all turn themselves into border patrol rather being arrested while evading capture because they want to ask for asylum in the United States, says the Wall Street Journal.
Kali Peeli cabs are no more. Mumbai's trademark Premier Padmini black and yellow taxis or Kali Peeli taxis are going off the roads. Whether in Bollywood films or folklore, the Premier Padmini taxis have stood out as an identifier of the city and its dependability across sun, rain and storm, at least on most days. A transport department official told the Times of India that the last Premier Padmini was registered as a black and yellow taxi at the Tardio, that's in central Bombay, Regional Transport Office on October 29th, 2003. As the age limit for these taxis is 20 years, the city officially will not have a Premier Padmini taxi from Monday. A.L. Quadros, the General Secretary of the Mumbai Taximans Union, told the Times of India that the journey of Premier Padmini taxis began in 1964 with the Fiat 1100 Delight model, known for its 1200cc engine and steering-mounted gear shifter. The model underwent rebranding in the 1970s, transitioning to Premier President and ultimately Premier Padmini. This iconic car, manufactured by Premier Automobile Limited, retained its name until production ceased in 2001 and around the same time when the company itself ceased to exist. In more recent years, spare parts have been an issue for this now rattling Premier Padmini and taxi drivers have transitioned to brands like Hyundai and Maruti Suzuki. Let's hope something else iconic and enduring takes over this slot of the Kalipili taxi. That's it for me for today. Have a great week ahead. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.